Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. We all have things about our lives and ourselves that we would like to change. But making changes, especially big ones, is hard. And it's hard for reasons that many of us are unable to see. In his book, Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier, Douglas Gentile helps us see and understand the forces that make it far easier for all of us to follow our old patterns even when we really want to change. Gentile is a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He is also a Buddhist monk. In the book, he blends psychological principles with the teachings of traditional Buddhism, and he is with me now. Hello, Doug. Hi, Charity. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And of course, you and I have spoken many times about research that you've done, primarily about young people and media, and with a 30-plus year career as a research psychologist, I'm sure that it surprises a lot of people to hear that you are also a Buddhist monk. So tell me a little bit about that. What drew you to Buddhism? (laughs) It surprises me too, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I uh, grew up a Lutheran preacher's kid, and at age 19, I did that thing lots of 19-year-olds do, which is realize that uh, the only reason I believe what I believe is because someone told it to me and that's not a great reason to believe something. I should have my own reasons. And so I started, uh, kind of my, my personal spiritual journey then and, you know, read world religions and over time, uh, found that, uh, I had these moments of insight and they tended to line up for me behind, uh, you know, the Buddhist or Taoist ph- philosophical view rather than other uh, religious or philosophical views. And that just kept me, kept me going. And, uh, I live here in Ames and, uh, the local Unitarian, uh, fellowship at, uh, in 2005 started up a mindfulness and meditation group. And so I joined it and after a while they were looking for more leaders. And as a credentialed person, I felt uncomfortable leading because although I'd been studying Buddhism for years and years and years, I was all self-taught and so then I did, you know, did a secular Buddhist studies certificate and a, a year-long, uh, you know, meditation teacher training out in New York City. And I was flying out to the city every six weeks. And then I had my certificate. Right, I'm good to go. And on that day, it's like, no, I have to go all in. And entered seminary and did another master's degree wow. and shaved, shaved my head and. Why? I don't know. It's what all my Christian friends say feeling called is like, I have to, I, it's not something I want to, I just, I just have to. So you obviously have, have been profoundly moved by the spiritual practices and teachings of Buddhism. And in this book, you write a lot about some of those principles, but you also bring in your knowledge of psychology. And and often the principles that you're talking about in Buddhism align very closely with the principles that you have studied and use as a psychologist. Through your spiritual journey, was that something that, that kept occurring to you and kept happening in your mind? Uh, well... So uh, 
I, I spent uh, five years as a, a single father. And there was one time when I was putting my daughter to bed and my ex-wife uh, called up and, uh, you know, had things she wanted to say. <laughs> and so I went to another part of the house and let her yell at me uh, for half an hour. Uh, and then I hung up the phone and, oh, what was I doing? Oh, I was putting Lauren to bed. So I go back in the room and I don't know what my daughter expected to see. I think, you know, she expected me to be upset and I wasn't because once the conversation was done, I was done. Right. Uh, and she asked me to explain Buddhism to her, which is nine-year-old I thought was kind of weird uh and I started looking for books that would be useful for tweens and I couldn't find any I liked so I started writing uh well I started just telling her parables and things like that and then I started writing them down thinking you know I should be the one to write that book uh the problem is that anytime I tried to write it it blended psychological science <laughs> because that's just how my mind works and it, you know, a lot of writers talk about finding their voice. I found I couldn't write in any other way than, than to discuss the, you know, the philosophy as it related to the science. And this is kind of the outcome of that, uh, that process. And uh, you dedicate the book to Lauren. So was, was she a big part of you deciding that it was time to write specifically this book? Well, yeah, this specific book, uh, uh, I, I died a couple times the past few years, not technically. I, my heart never fully stopped, but I was in the hospital and was within hours of being dead. And my daughter came home from Iowa city, uh, to, to be in the hospital with me. And she, you know, was trying to do the optimistic thing of saying, uh, you know, what do you want to do once you get better? And I said, oh, I want to write books. Really? What? That's what I want? Huh, I guess it is. <laughs> and so she said, well, you should do that. <laughs> and so even though this is outside of my normal bailiwick, uh, it, uh, it is, you know, really because of her prodding. Well, I, and I can imagine that this is a work that, that is going to be very helpful to a lot of people. So let's dive into to what you are trying to do with the book. The title, Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier, is a pretty good explanation of, of what you're doing. But tell me how you define being stuck. Uh, well, I think we've all had the experience uh, of let's say, you know, going home for the holidays and you know, there's someone there could be your mother, could be a, a sibling, could be a child, could be an uncle or aunt, uh, who, uh, with whom you're going to get into the same old argument with again. And you know this and you dread it and you don't want to have that argument, <clears throat> excuse me. And yet you still find that you do. <laughs> that seems really antithetical to us as, you know, humans with agency, we don't want to get into the same argument and yet we keep doing it. Why is that? Uh, you, you know, we tend to think that we do what we want and we don't do what we don't want. And yet we keep finding that we're stuck having the same problems or we, we're stuck dating the same type of person over and over again. We keep repeating these patterns throughout our lives. Uh, and if we're sensitive and we notice them, that's already a big step. A lot of people don't even notice the patterns they're trapped in. 
but then it's not as easy as just wishing for it to be different. It does seem like a. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm thinking about every television show, every movie, every book that I've ever read, where that is that is exactly the plot. The main character doesn't like the way their life is going, so they decide to make a radical change. And um, what I'm hearing you say is that for a lot of us, that is fiction, because even if we decide that we want to make a change, we find ourselves unable to do it. There we get sucked right back into the same pattern. I used to say that I think uh, couples should go to marriage counseling for the very first year of their dating (laughs) because the patterns you set in that first year are really hard to break. Um, And so if, you know, if you went to couples therapy right at the beginning and set up really healthy patterns, boy, that, those patterns would be really hard to break rather than, you know, whatever just kind of happens by chance. (laughs) <laughs> that's uh, maybe there's another career for you in in setting up <laughs> oh that god clinic. no no one <laughs> so no uh, one wants that all right so so your goal with this book is to help us see the patterns in our lives and understand where they come from and then hopefully how to step out of those patterns and one of the ways that you help us do that as readers is by explaining karma and we only have a couple of minutes before the break and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about karma but this is a word that we love to throw around in the english language all the time but as you point out there's no actual definition for karma to translate it into the English language. So first, let's talk about how a lot of us tend to understand karma. I mean, we, we tend to think that if we do a good thing, then something good will happen to us, right? Right. That, you know, that, uh, well, the word itself just means action. Uh, so when you take an action, there is a result. That's the, the core of what it is, is that you know, our actions have consequences. But we've misunderstood it uh, to think it's like a law uh, that it that works in exactly the same way every time and for every person, and that's not accurate. We tend to think that it's somehow equal and opposite. <laughs> so if you do something good, you get something good. If you do something bad, you get something bad. And this is actually a really dangerous way of understanding it because I have heard people do lots of victim blaming with this idea that if, you know, something bad happens to you, you say, well, that's, you know, that's your karma, you know, that somehow you deserve it. Um, I'm not sure that's always true. In fact, I know many cases that's entirely not true. If, if you were, uh, you know, abused as a child, that is not your action. That was the action of the abuser. You are the victim. You had no choice in it. (laughs) You had no, you were a child and it's not, you know, uh, your karma, that's just really offensive to me way of doing it. And it, and it really can harm the person because it just makes them feel even more at fault for something that they already feel very badly about. So this sort of, um, nickel version of karma (laughs) that we talk about in our culture. I mean, it it can be funny, it can be a joke, but it can also Mm -hmm. be really harmful. I think so. And, and when we understand it as simplistically as this, uh, well, just like, you know, most things, the minute we reduce them, uh, down to something really simple, often we miss what's really important about them. 
And I think that's certainly true about karma. You know, it is a very rich and useful teaching. But when we reduce it down to something like a law or something simplistic, like, you know, you do X and you get Y, um, then we've really missed the point. All right. Well, we, we will dive a little bit deeper into karma. Obviously, you can spend years studying the idea of karma. <laughs> We're going to spend a few minutes studying the idea of karma in a moment. I am talking with Douglas Gentile. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He is also a Buddhist monk and has just published Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking with Douglas Gentile about his book, Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He is also a Buddhist monk. And in the book, he blends psychological principles with the teachings of traditional Buddhism to help us understand the patterns in our lives, the patterns that we continue to perpetuate that keep us stuck. He also helps us understand the possibilities for change. And Doug, just before the break, we were talking about how the idea that we have of karma in our society tends to be very shallow, maybe even damaging. But you believe that understanding karma can really help us understand our lives. So understanding karma in its true sense, in the Buddhist sense, You said it means action, but that's not exactly what it means. So help us help us understand (laughs) what karma is. So um, one image I like to use to think of it is like if you throw a, you know, a pebble into a pond, you get a ripple that extends out from it. And that is, you know, the action you take. And there are... uh, you know, the effects of it can be felt. Uh, and sometimes it can be felt very far away from it. Uh, if you've said something really harsh to someone uh, and and injured them, uh, they may still be upset a year later. <laughs> that, now, that is a uh, kind of a wave they're riding a long time. And the, and the stronger the action, uh, whether that's, uh, I guess, you know, it could be, we could think of it as a good action or a bad action, a harmful action, uh, it makes bigger ripples. And so that's, you know, kind of an entry point for thinking about it, but it's a misleading image because it's pretty static. You aren't actually just, you know, dropping the, you know, the rock and standing still you're moving forward kind of in time. And so you could think of yourself more as a boat in that. And the, you know, the boat bounces and makes ripples, but you're moving forward. You may actually catch up to those ripples and feel the effect of it yourself. But this also isn't enough because you're not the only one in the pond. Right. We do tend to think about ourselves as sort of being the center (laughs) of the universe and I'm the one creating the situation, but we are not the center of the universe, are we? (laughs) 
Well, it depends how we want to look at that philosophically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Not in the way we think we are. Let's put it that way. Okay. (laughs) But uh, so other people are taking actions and we can feel the ripples from them. And so if a drunk driver crashes into you and you get injured, it isn't your karma. It wasn't your action. Uh, it was, you know, the drunk driver's action, but you can still feel the effects of it. So we can also inherit other people's karma. It's not only our own actions that we can feel the effects of. Uh, and so everyone's making ripples all the time and, and we can feel those effects. Uh, and some of those are at, you know, very micro level. Some of those are at a macro level, uh, when, uh, you know, there's a war in the Ukraine and gas prices go up. We all feel that effect, even if we don't recognize that's probably very linked to the war. You suggest that uh, a good practice, a good exercise would be to sit down and and try to think about or even write down all of the elements that have combined to bring you to this moment and this place in time where you are. Now, obviously, that's an impossible task um, because there (laughs) are are so many things. But what do you think we gain through spending 10 minutes, 20 minutes, just thinking about all of those different elements that have brought us to this place? Well, we start recognizing how we aren't a solid, stable, uh, you know, an independent person that in fact we are constantly changing and that those constant changes are often because of the relationships we have had or the training we've had or the nutrition we've had. Uh, and you know, just a simple question like, you know, what had to happen for me to be here in this studio? Uh, right now. Well, the studio had to have been built. Uh, WOI had to have been, uh, created, Uh, I had to have had the training I've had and written this book, which of course means I've had to have all these teachers throughout my life. (laughs) And I've had to have all of these experiences that allowed me to have, uh, uh, you know, got you to come back to Iowa to to be interviewing (laughs) me. I mean, it it just explodes out. It's endless. uh, And endless. And that I think brings a sense of humility that yes, while we think of ourselves as the center of the universe, and we are certainly the centers of our own universes, we don't actually notice usually how big that universe is. And so when we do that, we can often feel, first of all, a lot of gratitude for many of the things that happened, including often a lot of the really bad things that changed us or helped us grow in new ways. Um, but we also can stop blaming ourselves for perhaps getting stuck in the same patterns or for having uh, you know certain types of reactions that we wish we didn't have because there's kind of no way for it to be any different at this moment. For you to be different in this moment, you would have had to have had different experiences in the past. So in a sense, you're perfect exactly as you are at this moment. And yet you could probably still use some improvement. (laughs) So there's a nice little conundrum there. You are absolutely perfect because there's no possible way for you to be different. But now if you want to do something different, now you get a chance to. You use a term that I was not familiar with, uh, developing a pronoid mind as opposed to a paranoid <laughs> mind. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I made that term up. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, or I might have heard it at some point, but I have no idea where. But 
if we think about, you know, we go around feeling so anxious all of the time that uh, we're worried about what might happen. We're worried about a conversation we're going to have. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly, um, you know, strategizing and manipulating to try to make, you know, some imagined future happen in a certain way. And paranoid comes from the Greek, um, that, you know, uh, the, the noid, the new, you know, comes from the, the noose, uh, uh, which means mind in Greek. Um, and para is around against contrary to irregular. Um, so we have a contrary mind, a mind that circles around things, a mind, uh, that goes against reality. Uh, and I think we can, feel that, <laughs> that, you know, our anxiety is us pushing against some imagined reality or actual reality, uh, that we wish things were different than they were. What, you know, does that make us happy to constantly be agitating for some different reality? Usually it does not make most people happier. Uh, and I think the fact that we're diagnosing more and more anxiety disorders and mood disorders these days than ever before in human history, uh, suggests that that strategy just isn't working for us. Um, so what would be the alternative? Well, we could create what I you know, call a pronoid mind, which, uh, you know, if you'll excuse me now, I've moved into the Latin. <laughs> so the, you know, I'm blending the Latin and the Greek. The pro uh, is before or forward or taking care of, or just as. So a, a, a pronoid mind would be one that takes care of us, that sees something just as it is. That's, uh, you know, before thinking perhaps, uh, that's just working with what actually is in front of us that trusts that the next moment will be okay, or at least we'll be able to work with it. And I think that's really my definition of an awakened being, is someone who trusts that the next moment will be workable. And if we look back at our lives, you know, another nice contemplation is, you know, what is it that you need to do, uh, or what needs to happen for you to stay alive for five more minutes? And think of all those things. And some of those are at a microbiological level. You have to, you know, maintain the correct balance of proteins and enzymes and with the bacteria that co-inhabit our body, they happen at a larger level. Like you have to have enough oxygen and not too many pollutants. The sun has to keep shining. The world has to keep spinning. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the temperature has to be within a restricted range. There's millions, literally millions of things that have to go exactly right for you to stay alive for another couple of minutes. And if we look back at our own lives, they always have. Any one of them could have, you know, killed us. And yet everything has always, the universe has always given us enough. It's like the universe is conspiring to make us happy, but we don't trust that. Why not? That's our actual real lived experience is that the universe has always given us enough. Doesn't mean we've liked every moment. Doesn't mean there haven't been horrible, painful, damaging moments. But even in those times, the universe still gave us enough. And could we learn to trust that? I'm talking to Douglas Gentile. He's the author of Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier, blending psychological principles with principles of Buddhist teachings. And we're talking about karma 
And so now we understand that many, many, many different elements have brought us to the moment that we are. We're talking about not spending time uh, perseverating on the past to try to accept that we are in the moment where we are. So let's talk about how karma plays into moving forward as as we make decisions or follow patterns that, that take us into the future. Sure. Well, I, I just want to take a little issue with one of the words. We often use this word accept. And I think in American English, it has a term, it has a connotation of thinking it's okay. This moment may not be okay for you. <laughs> Bad things may be happening. Uh, and so I prefer the word allow. Okay. That we allow things to be as they are, because that's how they really are. I mean, it may not be how, you may not like how it is, but that's how it is. <laughs> and trying to force ourselves to accept it, uh, I think is perhaps a little too strong for many people. If we can just allow uh, that here's how it is, then at least we stop putting energy into fighting something that we can't change. We can't change the past. We really can't change the future. And as long as we keep putting energy there, uh, we're wasting it. We're losing our agency. So once we allow that the situation is how it is, how can we work with our actions, with our karma, uh, and I think one way is to recognize that if we were going to give karma an English translation, I think a better translation in modern English would be learning. That the first time you have an experience of something, uh, I don't know, have, Charity, have you ever tasted the uh, Southeast Asian fruit durian? I have not. Uh, right. But you so can, it's, t- it's you like can tell a, us about your experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really surprising fruit. It's, you know, it's about as big as a basketball with hard spikes on the outside and you chop into it with a machete and inside are basically, you know, big, uh, you know, hand-sized, uh, seeds around which is the meat, you know, of the nut. And these have, um, in my experience, kind of the smell of sewage and skunk and old (laughs) socks And the taste is, it's a custard, which is really quite surprising. It's a custard texture. And the taste is kind of like smoky, sweet scallions paired with this really, to me, difficult flavor smell. (laughs) And the first time I tried it, I, you know, was very curious, you know, I'd heard about it. Uh, and I, so I'm sitting there tasting it going, do I like this? Do I not like, what, what is this? This is really weird. Um, well, it turns out I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> so the second time I had it, I didn't go in nearly as open. I already thought I knew what I, that I was going to dislike it. And what do you know? I did, but is that because I really disliked it? or because I had already made up my mind. And that's kind of the effect of karma, that our past conditioning changes the way we experience a new situation. Each new situation is fresh and vibrant and has plenty of possibility. But if we've been in similar situations, and what similar means can (laughs) really vary, uh, we go in with a strategy Uh, which I think is another word for karma, that we're being controlled by the past to approach the new situation only in a certain way, already putting constraints on it. 
And so we actually lose lots of opportunities because we don't approach them openly. So does that mean you should give up everything you've ever learned and, uh, you know, and, and be a baby all the time? No, but we can recognize the, you know, that we walk into a new situation already feeling this kind of push to act a certain way or to try to get things to be a certain way, uh, or to resist something. And that's us feeling our karmic momentum. And we're just noticing it already means we're not being quite as controlled by it anymore. We get a choice then. Do we want to go along with it or not? And a really simple and silly example is I'm one of those people who goes into restaurants. And once I find the thing on the menu that I love, I just order that every time. <laughs> and, and so I walk in and I order the same thing. I think that's my free will. That's a choice I'm making. But is it really? If I've already decided I like this the best and I order it again, I'm actually being controlled by my past conditioning. That isn't a free choice at all. If I wanted to have a truly free choice about something, I would choose something I think I'm going to hate. <laughs> That's, that is the clearest example of actual free will is going against your karmic momentum. But you don't need to, even if you just feel, you know, I normally get this. Uh, let me see if there's something else that, you know, I'm willing to do today. And I at least pause and I look at the full menu. Even if at that point I say, no, I'm going to get the same thing I always get. At least that point, it's really a choice because I took the time to feel the momentum, but not just be propelled by it uh, and not just do the thing I always knew I was going to do anyhow. And of course, we're focusing on our own actions, which is all we're really responsible for. But you do point out again and again that those actions, that karma is interacting with the karma of those in our lives, in our relationships, in our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you may live a totally uh, carbon-free or carbon-neutral lifestyle, but you're still going to have to deal with the effects of global warming because you know, society, you know, there are these societal levels of it, there are relational levels, there are the personal levels of actions, and we, uh, we have to work with all of that. So we have all of these constraints around us that, that uh, kind of get in the way of what we like to refer to as free will. But you in the book point out where we have these opportunities to make a change, to step out of our patterns, to exercise what we like to call free will. And we will dig into that in just a moment. I'm talking with Douglas Gentile. He is the author of Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He is also a Buddhist monk. And in the book, he blends psychological principles with the teachings of traditional Buddhism to help us understand how we got to be who we are where we are right now, and also how we might possibly be able to make changes for the future. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. 
This is an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking with Douglas Gentile. He is the author of Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and Be Happier. He is also a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University, and he is also a Buddhist monk. And in the book, he blends those psychological principles with the teachings of traditional Buddhism to help us understand our world and also hopefully help us think about how we can make changes in our lives. And so... We've been talking a lot about karma, Doug, and and how it has brought us to the moment that we are in now. But uh, let's talk about the concept of free will, something that, you know, not everybody believes that we have. I like to believe that my life is not predestined and that I do have free will. (laughs) But you point out a lot of ways in which I do not have free will. So let's talk (laughs) about free will and, and what it even is. Well, I think it's, you know, my take on it, uh, and uh, I'd say both the uh, psychological, you know, literature on it, as well as, uh, you know, the Buddhist philosophical literature says that we do have it, but it's not necessarily what we think it is. Um, And uh, some of the studies that I, uh, that I love about this, you know, the, the classic one, by Benjamin LeBay, imagine you put like a skull cap of electrodes on your head. And so that can measure exactly when your brain is doing things, you know, very precise. And we put an electrode on your finger so that can move exactly when you move it. And you're sitting there um, looking, say, at uh, an oscilloscope with a clock dial zooming around very quickly. And you're told of your own free will, whenever you want, move your finger. But notice the time when you decide to move your finger. And so you sit there watching it and maybe you say, okay, now, and you say now to yourself at 12 o'clock. Well, it turns out that you can see that in the brain when that, when that thought occurs and the finger movement happens about 200 milliseconds, two tenths of a second after it. Now that makes a type of sense. I think, you know, that we have a thought and then, uh, And then we do the thing. And so we have this feeling that the thought somehow caused the action. But it turns out that feeling is wrong. Because when we look at what happened in the brain, your brain actually started ramping up 500 milliseconds before you had the thought. So something in you decided a half second before you even knew you decided, before conscious awareness said now. (laughs) So... Something that is deciding, it, it has two effects. It makes you think the thought and it makes you act. The thought's not the thing that makes you act. The actual decider. Now, what is that decider? Um, and you know, I don't know that we have a good answer for that yet, <laughs> but it does suggest that you did make a decision. You're just not even aware of how that decision happened because the decision happened before you became consciously aware and could talk about it. So Dan Wegner, a late uh, professor of Harvard, did some fantastic studies. My favorite one, however, is just so outrageous. <laughs> Imagine that you're standing uh, up and uh, I uh, put my hands under your arms and we put on a lab coat. 
And I put my hands through the arms of the lab coat, and right, I'm wearing so they're, gloves. They're where my arms would be if my arms were yes. were sticking out. But but you know exactly that they're not your arms, right? Because <laughs> you can feel my arms under your armpits and, and, and see them. And then you have headphones on. And the headphones every now and then give you instructions like, you know, uh, make an okay sign with your right hand, uh, snap your fingers, clap your hands together. Now, I also have headphones on telling me what to do. And, and so I snap my fingers when it says to, you know, but you look down, it kind of looks like your arm snapping the fingers. What's interesting is when asked, did you cause the snapping of fingers or the clapping of hands, you know they're not your arms, and yet you feel like you caused it. As long as you had the thought, as long as it occurred to you, because the headphones told you, you know, somewhere between one and three seconds before uh, you, you see the action, you actually feel like you had agency over it, which is bizarre because right. you know they're you not your hands, you know you're not, not doing it. And yet you actually believe you did. Uh, All right. Well, and you, so and you give we us, have this feeling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you give us a lot of examples of, of times that we feel like we have free will when we clearly don't. You told me to think of a number and go through this whole exercise. And then you, you predicted exactly what I would be thinking in spite of the fact that you wrote a book and didn't even know who would be reading it. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you illustrate this in many ways, that we have these patterns that we're going to perpetuate, that we fall into. We don't even know that we're doing it. We <coughs> feel like we're in control, but we're clearly not. And you then introduce us to a, a Buddhist teaching that helps us understand the process of what is happening. And it's pretty complicated, yeah. so you're going to have to to simplify it even more than you did in the book for us. But uh, and tell us about the, the tw- and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, the 12 Nindanas. Yeah, the 12 Nindanas. It's uh, sometimes translated as the 12 links in the chain of dependent origination, as if that somehow is a better title. Uh, <laughs> um, it's trying to understand how we do get stuck in habitual patterns. And it's a, it's a psychological idea, you know, uh, and I'll just focus on a couple of the steps of it, uh, that it starts with, uh, at step five, that we have sense organs. We have the five we normally think of sight, sound, uh, taste, touch. Uh, but, uh, we also in Buddhist psychology have thinking mind is a sense. So there are six senses in Buddhist psychology. And so these senses are open to the environment. And when a sense organ comes into contact, which is the next step, with some uh, object that fits that. So for sight, it's visible uh, forms and colors. So when I open my eyes and I see something in my visual field, there is that awareness of contact. And right after the awareness of seeing the thing, we have a feeling that goes with it. And it could be a positive feeling. It could be a negative feeling. It could be a neutral feeling. And uh, all of that within, you know, the Buddhist psychological view is um, not under our control. That's just the way, you know, it, it is. We have, you know, sense organs, they come into contact, and then we immediately have some a uh, feeling that arises, whether we like it and want to look at it more, dislike it, want to look away from it, or just don't care and kind of don't pay any attention. 
So we can't control any of that. And a lot of that past feeling comes from our conditioning, from what experiences we've had in the past with similar things. The next step is we usually feel a thirst. Uh, we want more of it, or we want less of it, or we want to uh, pretend it doesn't exist. We want, uh, and that is under our control, but we usually don't notice that. We usually go straight from the feeling of, oh, I find that, you know, uh, pleasant and get immediately then think of how can I get more of it, <laughs> uh, or how can I get away from it? Uh, and then the step after that is we take an action, which is in, in this framework called grasping. We, we take an action to try to get more, to get away or to ignore. Those are under our control, but they are so habitual. Usually we don't exercise any control. We just take the feeling as if this means we're supposed to get more of it. And then we try to get more of it, or we take the feeling as I don't like that. So I'm going to try to do what I can to get away from it or to make it go away. Instead of recognizing that we can just stop at the feeling and notice I'm having this reaction, but I don't have to do anything about it. And often our trouble comes from feeling like we have to do something about it. And, and so there are these gaps, you know, Buddhists often talk about, you know, there's a gap into which you can step, which takes you off the wheel of going round and round, um, doing the same things over and over. And so you can use the feeling as a trigger. So you notice something gives you a strong reaction. Well, don't let your mind chase after that and say, okay, well, you know, I don't like this person and, you know, and tell a story about it. Instead, notice where do I feel this in my body? And that alone weakens the karmic momentum that you're not just reinforcing the cycle again, because every time you just go along with what you already thought you were going to like, you know, do, <laughs> you just reinforce it even deeper. You burn it deeper into your brain. And so we can use the feeling as a trigger to step out. Now, Often that's hard to notice it and, but <clears throat> we can also use the feeling of thirst. We start noticing, wow, I really want to do something. You start strategizing, but stop before doing it. That's another place we can kind of step into the gap and not habitually reinforce our existing habits, our existing wants, uh, which are there because they served us at one point in the past, but they're usually not appropriate for this new situation or at least they're limiting you from being able to consider other options. I, when, when I was reading about this, I kept thinking about a, a rule that I have in my life where if somebody sends me um, an email that makes me angry, <clears throat> I don't respond to it right away. I wait 24 hours to respond. If I'm, if I'm really angry, <laughs> I'm going to wait and write it out later when I'm Good. not in the grips of that feeling. And that's kind of an exaggerated um, version of what you're suggesting that we can do. So this this moment in time, this sometimes a split second in time, sometimes longer, this is our opportunity to step out of the pattern and to make a different choice. Yeah. And you know, I, th I think your example is exactly right. Uh, you know, my mother told me count to 10. <laughs> right. Right. That's kind of the same thing too. Uh, the problem is often, you know, we just try to distract ourselves from the, the feeling that uh, rather than recognize there's actually real wisdom 
uh, when you're feeling anger, at least in that first moment of feeling anger, the wisdom is you're seeing s clearly that something is not fair or something is not just or, you know, that, that something is wrong. The problem is we also have confusion that comes along at the same moment as the wisdom. Right. <laughs> and that confusion is usually I want to do something. I want to do something to reduce my feeling. Um, and then when we do something to either let our feeling out, we act out in some way or we repress it, uh, that doesn't usually lead to being a good thing to do. And so if we give the feeling the space to actually just be, we often can separate out the wisdom. And everyone's had this experience uh, where, you know, they didn't know what to do and they just sat, they let it be. And then at some point later, it came to them, oh, this is the right way to handle this situation. And it's because they gave it enough space. The problem is we usually rush so quickly feeling that momentum of our emotion. And, you know, to, to play geek again, you know, the moat in <laughs> emotion is the same uh, Latin root as in motivation that when we feel an emotion, we feel moved to do something. But just because we feel that motivation to do something doesn't mean we should right then. <laughs> right. And if we can give it some space, we often notice, oh, there's a much wiser thing to do than the thing I felt like doing at that very moment. And you give in the book some some real world examples of changes in your own life. You also uh, you share the experiences of a woman named Diane throughout the book and, and changes that she was able to make in her life by recognizing that moment of feeling and and stepping out of the cycle. And I, I think that, you know, people who want to really change something about their lives, they want big action. They want to, to do something big to make a change. But you demonstrate that learning to recognize that feeling, stepping away from your pattern and, and giving yourself that space to make a different decision, the ripple effects of, of something that seems so small can be hugely transformative. Indeed. And and it takes time. And I think that's part of why people want the big <laughs> thing. They, they recognize that this pattern is causing them continued suffering and they very reasonably want to stop suffering so much. Um, and they want it to stop right now. And, and so, you know, that's totally a very reasonable approach, but big change is really hard and it's very hard to sustain. You might be able to do it for a week, but then, you know, because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm turning 58. Um, I've spent 58 years building the patterns I have now. What makes me think I'm going to change them in a week or a month or a year? Uh, I need to undermine them, you know, over time and learn a new habit in its place. And that just takes some time. And so we have to give ourselves the grace to recognize that each of these small little things is already a win. You also point out that a, a lot of the patterns that we develop earliest are the patterns that 
are hardest to disrupt. I mean, you you write about your relationship with your mother. I was finding myself thinking about how it's so much easier for me to get mad at one of my brothers than it is for me to get mad at anybody else in the world because I have those old patterns so deeply ingrained. So so that's sure. a part of it too. If you want to change something, if it's something that has been with you for decades, that's going to be harder, right? It probably will. I don't know that it has to. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the stories I tell is how my relationship with my mother transformed immediately. And I did not ever expect that. And it, I think, is because I was approaching it very differently. So, so let me ask you, Charity, you know, how do you find these, you know, teachings uh, and examples in the book useful for yourself to use? You know, how do you see that you might be able to use them? Well, we only have a minute left, so I <laughs> can't possibly <laughs> tell you all of the ways. But it, it did make me think, Doug, that um, although I didn't understand these principles, that the times in my life when I actually have affected positive change in my life, I've been using exactly these techniques, I just didn't know why or why it worked. So I really appreciate the clarity that that you brought to my thinking, and I'm sure it can be helpful for many others. And we are out of time, but it has been wonderful to talk to you today. Lovely speaking with you. Douglas Gentile is the author of Finding the Freedom to Get Unstuck and be happier. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at Iowa State University. He is also a Buddhist monk, and in the book, he blends psychological principles with the teachings of traditional Buddhism. Talk of Iowa is a production of Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nubby.